0: fan, and he said I had to preach to be able to get a fan, so uh, here we go, right? My name is Ben Winkler. I'm the assistant pastor here at Redeemer, um, and we're just so thrilled to have you with us, whether you've been here at Redeemer for a long time or whether this uh, is your first outing with us. We are just a small little church community dreaming of what God's kingdom looks like as it inhabits and, and plants itself in, in our community, as his kingdom of flourishings finds its home here. And coincidentally enough, uh, our text this morning invites us to dream of that same thing, to dream of what life could look like when the goodness and truth and mercy and justice of God finds its home in us. So before I get started, let me... Uh, pray for us here this morning. Father, even as we uh, gather uh, outside on a warm day, as the breeze blows our, our papers around, Lord, as there's a million distractions in every way we could look. And yet in these words, Lord, in the teachings that you gave your disciples, in the life that you lived amongst them, Lord, you held out a hope a dream for the future that is, is far more beautiful than we could ever dare imagine. Lord, I pray that as we read and as we hear your words, Lord, that you would give us understanding into what you were talking about, what the hope is for the future, and what that looks like in the here and in the now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was, uh, I guess it was about five years ago, almost exactly, that we moved to Memphis. But it was four years ago that uh, Whitney and I bought our, our home here in Midtown and we moved in and and right off the bat, I mean, I think maybe it was maybe right after the closing or maybe right when we did that final inspection before closing, we went over to the house and we were showing the kids and, you know, they're running laps around uh, the front yard as, as kids are prone to do, right? And... Uh, our, our new next door neighbor came out uh, and she was uh, just like the most friendly person that you could ever possibly imagine, right? Like she came out and she was like, talked about how excited she was to have kids next door, right? She was like, oh, I got a little, a little pool in the back that uh, the kids, whenever they want to come. In fact, here, let me, let me go ahead and give you the, the gate code so that you can get around to the back of my house to get in this pool whenever I'm at work. Feel free to send the kids over. Uh, you know, she's like, H- here, look, in front of my house, I got some herbs and and some um, herbs that are growing, and, and feel free to to take what you what you need or what you want. I am just so excited to have you here. But then, as the conversation kept going, you know, obviously, we started talking about what we do for a living, um, and while not many of you probably have had the the, uh, the privilege of, of telling folks that you're a pastor for a living. I hope you can imagine some of the awkwardness that this sometimes bring. But in particular, I remember uh, telling our, our neighbor that I was a, a pastor and, and I'll never forget this look that came over her face. It was like this, like if you tried to if you put together like an eye roll, like, okay, just an absurd fairy tale believing idiot just moved next door. Right? And you combine that with like a a grimace, right? Like, oh shoot, what just happened to me, right? Like, what nuisance is this guy going to bring into my life? What headaches is he going to bring me? That's what she gave me. You, if you're going to be a Christian here in Midtown in this time and place, you must be either, right, uh, you're either going to be a nagging nuisance. Right? Or you're going to be an inept idiot. Right? You're going to think you're going to be saving the world, but in fact, you're doing nothing for the good around us. As we come to this teaching of Jesus, we come to a time in the season of his ministry when, when the leaders of the Jewish community around him were looking at him and they were saying, Okay, wait, wait. You're saying you're bringing God's kingdom, but you got like 12 dudes sitting around you. You say you're bringing God's kingdom, but, but we still have Romans that are oppressing us and holding us bonded. You say you're bringing God's kingdom, but you can barely gather enough people uh, to draw a crowd. What good is your kingdom to our problems here today? You bring no firepower. You bring no revolution. Our neighbor's Look at our church in the midst of a, a city struck with pandemic, crippled by racism and, and prejudice, abuse and neglect on every side. And it is, it's only fair for them to say, you, you, you promised to bring the kingdom of God, but what good are you? And maybe if we're being honest, even when we ourselves look at our lives as followers of Christ, we wonder... Is anything really different? Is there anything really new to this new life that we claim? Is there any good in this kingdom that is coming? But Jesus answers his accusers uh, in a couple ways. He says, "Before before you make your assessment, before you close the books on the kingdom that I'm promising, before you can assess what we're doing here, first you need to understand what it is. And so today we're going to look quickly at at three different questions. Three different questions that his parables, his teachings help us to understand. First, where is the kingdom headed? What is its end goal? Second, where is it now? What should we expect to see? And third, what is our part? How do we help it to arrive? So first, Jesus says, you want to know what good my kingdom is? He says, well, you can't quite assess it. Yet, because you don't know where it's going, right? And he tells them a parable of a, of a seed, a mustard seed, this tiny little seed. And he says, do you judge the, the worth of a mustard seed based upon what it looks like as a seed? Or do you judge its worth based upon what it grows into? Right this week, uh, bless the, the Kenneas over here, they sent my kids home with these packets of seeds, right? Just these brown, empty envelopes with seeds on them and the kids came into my house thrilled exuberant right they came in and they said look at what miss savannah gave us now were they excited because they got a a brown envelope with little could be rocks on the inside or were they excited because of what they dreamed those seeds would become the watermelons the flowers the the whatever else she gave them um You can ask her later. What what else? She's trying to make up for my uh, horticulture ineptness, uh, as as we've talked about in the past. But Jesus looks at his accusers and says, don't judge what it looks like now because uh, the inconspicuous start to the kingdom is not indicative of insignificance of what this kingdom could come to play in our world. And so he says, instead, look at what Look at what the picture is on the front of the seed packet. Look what this kingdom will one day be. And if we were to put it one word to it, it would be flourishing, flourishing. Now, you may, depending on how you grew up in the church or, or not in the church, you may think the Christian gospel leads us to either uh, some sort of religious pipe dream that's come abstract and, and detached from our world. Or maybe you, uh, you view it just as an incremental step, right? A, a little bit of good comes out of it. But Jesus points to this millennia-old dream of the Old Testament, this dream that when the kingdom of God came and, and rested on earth, there would be universal human flourishing. In, in the front of your bulletin, I printed this little, art, this little quote here um, from Dr. Planega. Uh, where he, he talks about this Hebrew concept of shalom. And, and when Jesus comes to, to his disciples and says that this mustard tree or this mustard shrub, this giant place that protects and, and provides for the birds of the air, what he's doing is he's pointing to this, this Old Testament concept of shalom. A shalom means universal flourishing, says Dr. Planega. wholeness, delight, A rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things are supposed to be. So Jesus is, <coughs> is looking out at his accusers, and he's saying, if you see my kingdom correctly, you see what it will one day be, a place where even the most vile and distant enemies can find a home, can find protection, can find shade for their well-being. But he doesn't just tell us where it's headed, though that certainly helps us to start comprehending what it's good for. He expects that there's something that's going to be different now. Right, So where is God's kingdom now? Watch as I smoothly transition to the next page of my notes. He says, uh, you notice that Jesus, uh, he doesn't say that the kingdom doesn't exist. He's saying that the kingdom is, is in the current state, is, is very, very small. A, a small microcosm of what will one day be. And especially in, in the context of Jesus' ministry, this, this element, Jesus, if we just flipped your Bible page over one step, you would see Jesus making this very argument, right? Someone comes to him and they says, Jesus, are you the one? Are, are you actually bringing God's kingdom? And he says, well, look around you. Do you see the, the sick being healed? Do you see the poor receiving good news? Do you see tangible expressions of, of goodness coming to be. You see, Jesus is saying that God's kingdom right now, we get to see, uh, if not its fullest and, and final flourishing, we get to see the preliminary evidence, right? The, the first little hints of what will one day be. And if we as a church are, are to be a, a little outpost of God's kingdom, here in Midtown Memphis, right? A, a little tiny taste, a little tiny spot where you can see what uh, what God's kingdom could look like, right? We ought to be able to start see, to see in us the expressions of flourishing for our neighbors, right? We ought to see us taking uh, tangible steps towards Pushing back against that racism and that poverty and that violence that our city knows too. Well, we need to see us loving and serving and and bringing cultural good to our neighborhood. But this morning, I want to point to to maybe one specific element of that, and that is that I think we we exist right now in an epidemic not just of a, a coronavirus, right, but an epidemic of rejection, right? If you use uh social media as a, as a thermometer, right? You take off people's uh, ability to just say whatever they want to say, and you find out what they really think, right? And you start to notice that we live in a, in a place where we're constantly afraid of being rejected, of being sent home, of being abandoned as friends, right? This week, I, I saw this post, and I uh, Uh, It was from a a neighborhood association on, on Facebook, and someone made this post, and they were like, there was a picture of a mattress by the side of the curb, right? And the person's post was, what kind of person would do this? What kind of person would set out their garbage for the garbage man to come collect? Right, the post has no benefit. It, the post has no means of helping the community. The post is meant for one specific purpose, and that is to utilize shame as a weapon to control the person who brought their trash out a day early. Maybe you've seen on your social media what I've seen on mine, a, a litany of posts where someone states a, a position or, or, or an action, right? And they say, if you don't agree with me, then just unfriend me right now unfriend me, don't have any relationship with me. Why do they say that? Why do we say that? I'm guessing it's because we have a fear that they're already going to reject us because of what we think or what we want to happen. And so we were like junior hires in a dating, right? You break up with her before she gets a chance to break up with you, right? Because you're afraid of being rejected and you and likewise are, are instilling the shame in those people that they too will encounter a rejection if they don't meet your standards for life for the way your dreams for the way that the world ought to go if they're not doing the number of things that you want them to do then they can no longer have a relationship with you and if we're to look at our our neighborhood here one of the things that we say is that we want to be a church that exists for the good of those who, for whom the claims of Jesus are so unimaginable. And one of the primary reasons that the claims of Christ are unimaginable to our neighborhood is that many of our neighbors have been in church. And instead of seeing the opposite of that fear of rejection, they were incultured, indoctrinated in a fear of rejection. Because when they came to church, when they grew up in church, they were, they were taught to fear above all else that God would reject them if they didn't complete the checklist of things that they would do. That if they didn't live up to the community's standards, if their lifestyle edged or, or flowed or, or quavered on any moment, then they could be rejected by the people, their friends that they had come to know. They grew up in a culture of, of a church that used shame and rejection as as a blunt weapon to control behavior. And if anyone should dare question or challenge or wonder of the truth of it all, they were to receive that shame and rejection from the community. And so when we come to this church and we endeavor to be a, a little slice of the kingdom of heaven here in Midtown, we've got our work cut out for us, right? To bring a, a little taste of flourishing uh, to our community means that we will be a people for whom this miracle of grace is believable. A people that, that are, are, are willing and, and dare to, to actually confess and say we screwed up to be a people who who empathize people who are are bruised and broken and and wandering who are confused and 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 find themselves controlled by their their sexual appetite or 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 by their uh, desire for power or control or or violence right that we be a place that people could dare to ask honest questions that we could be a place that, that rejects the, the untruths, the deadly habits, the volatile addictions which afflict our neighbors but yet not condition our love for them based upon them following through on the steps that we suggest they do, right, to be a people who celebrate the beauty and the goodness of the image of God in our neighbors. And this kind of church, this kind of church in this neighborhood, it's not going to pop up on Instagram. It's not going to be readily available for, for the world to see, but it will be real. A real fruit of the kingdom of God in our neighborhood. A real fruit, a real proof that this kingdom we talk about is not some pipe dream for some far-off distant future, but a present and growing reality in our neighborhood time and place so where are we going to the flourishing of our world where are we now we're 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 at the stage of seeing those preliminary evidence of god at work in us how do we help bring it how do we help move forward jesus in his uh his parable he he tells two little parables two little stories or analogies and the second one, he compares the kingdom of God <coughs> to a, a, a loaf of bread, right, to uh, this leaven and the way the leaven works with the flour to bring about this, this beautiful loaf or, or actually in this case enough loaves to feed a, a whole household, a whole community even um, with it. And, and in the ancient world, of course, they didn't use uh, dry, uh, dry active yeast packets, right, they, they like those of you bread makers who use your starter, right? They take a piece from the old dough and they mix it in with the, the, the ingredients for the new dough in order to see that life spread from the small piece to the to the big one. Over the last uh, few weeks, I've been uh, reading the Chronicles of Narnia. This this kind of obscure version in that series called The Horse and His Boy. Some of you may, uh, may have, have read it. We, me and my kids have been reading it. And, and, and if you haven't, that's okay too. But in the story, there is this, this boy. Shashta is his name. And he has grown up all his life as a slave to these fishermen. And, and Shashta has always found himself discontent, always finds himself staring off to the north. Right, always staring off and wondering what lays on the other side of that hill, and in his dreams and in his imaginations, he he pictured that this was a place where he could he could live a, a flourishing life, where he could uh, live the kind of life that he feels he ought to be able to live. Right, freedom to to move, freedom from the beatings of his master, freedom. To, to, to become the man that he was designed and, and created to be. But until one day came, it was always just that, a dream, a, a longing, a desire to go explore the north with the, the, the dream that there may be this country that existed on the other side. But it wasn't until a day came when a horse, he found himself talking to a horse, now, remember, this is a, a fantasy series, so just uh, run with me here, With all right? He finds himself this talking to this horse, and this horse, he, he also is a slave, and he also has been dreaming of escaping and going and finding this far-off distant country, but the horse knows just a little bit more because the horse has cultivated this imagination with his homeland he remembers the the sights and the sun and the breeze and the grasslands of this glorious place. And he has dreamed of what his life could be if he could ever get back to that place of flourishing. And so when Shasta is expressing to the horse his, his, his fears and his woes with his slave masters, it was the horse, Bree, who all of a sudden, in fact, he says to the horse, I just wish you could speak and tell me. And then the horse says, well, who says I can't? See, Bree is is a talking horse of Narnia. And it is once those two, the one who has the name of Narnia emblazoned on his mind, who has the images of what is to come, it's when that horse comes alongside that fellow slave that they are able to find their way to the north, find their way to the land of flourishing. And so in that way, I think we are like that talking horse, Brie. We are not advanced. We don't have all of the answers, but we have seen the picture of what Jesus says our homeland will be. We've learned and we've ached and we've cultivated this imagination of what will one day be. And if we are close enough, close enough to those for whom uh, the good of God's kingdom seems impossible, then we can be the ones to tell them it is real. Or rather, we can be the ones to show them, to live life with them. Because that's the way leaven works, isn't it? Leaven does no good if it's, it's set in, in one bowl on one side, and the flour and, and, and water and, and everything else is set on the other side. It does no good from a distance. And so we as a church long to, to live in proximity to this neighborhood, to our neighbors, right? To be the people to whom they, they were close enough that they could look at us and be like, well, that guy's a screw-up, but he's still loved anyway, right? To be close enough in, in places that we live, work, and, and play that, the, that the, 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 the possibility could be real that this kingdom, that this far-off land exists, and that a taste of its flourishing could be real now. Right, leaven doesn't just have to be close, though so it also has to be engaged, right? Uh, the the text tells us that the woman hid the leaven in the flour. Right? If you take a piece of old dough and you just set it on top of a pile of flour, it does not do any good, right? The, the dough has to be worked in, the alive, leavened dough has to be worked into the mixture of the new dough. It has to bump shoulders and, and it has to share life with those who are around it. So it does us no good to come and, and build a beautiful building here in Midtown if we are not actively seeking the good of those around us. If we're not actively seeking the good of the, the neighborhoods and the institutions Right, The city in which our neighborhood lives, in which our neighbors live. Neighbors who need to know the miracle of grace. Which is a third issue here, and I'll just point it to this, and that's patience. Leaven does not work in dough immediately. It's not a miracle that happens overnight. In fact, Jesus is telling this whole story to point out and to highlight to these people that... That the kingdom is going to take time. It's going to take time to change lives, right? It's going to take time to change relationships. It's going to take time and faithfulness in order for us to see the transformation of our world. But we can be patient because the one who plants the seed, the one who works the leaven into the dough, he is the one who is bringing the growth. So in that we know that our Father in heaven, Jesus here as he comes to earth comes with a very specific plan and that plan is to bring the flourishing of his kingdom incrementally over time through the faithful, engaged, proximate lives of those who have been changed. That the miracle of grace that happens in my heart could be the miracle of grace that changes my children's hearts, that the miracle of grace in my children's hearts could be the, the, the change that impacts uh, their, their, their teacher at their school, right? That the, the miracle of grace in my life could, could impact my, my fellow uh, kids. No, I won't use kids as another example. That the miracle of grace in my life could help my, make the gospel of grace intelligible to my neighbors, Right? To the, the folks I bump into at other lands, to the people who are around us, that they know that I am for their good. Because if we're gonna see this kingdom come, if we're gonna get a taste of this flourishing, it's not gonna come because of ourselves. It's not a hope in ourselves perfecting this but because God has given us this dream of flourishing and he has, has planted in us and, and brought about this preliminary evidence in our lives and then put us in time and place right, to work out what that flourishing means for this day and this hour in this place. We will see the kingdom of flourishing come not just to us, but to our neighbors all around us. Pray with me. Father, we long to be the people for whom the grace that you have poured into us is not an end result, but a starting point. A people that, that let uh, those around us to experience hope and, and life. To experience the way, the flourishing that, that we believe you made human beings to experience. A freedom Uh, freedom from those things which frighten us, the freedom from the fear of rejection, a freedom to live and to love as you have made us. Father, I pray that you would give us as your people that strength, that grace, and that faith. In Jesus' name, amen.